2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. I will post the verse on the screen in just a moment, but I, I want to give just a few moments to the consideration of this verse and the concept of the gracious gift of God. Now, of course, everyone loves a good gift, right? This is what makes this time of year so special, so fun, is that anticipation and enjoyment of gifts. This is one of the, the things that makes this, this season so special, uh, whether it was yesterday or today, whenever you gathered around and uh, shared gifts as a family. This is one of the things that is, is so fun about this Christmas season. Now, what I want to point out, however, for the next few moments is that there's an interesting wordplay between these ideas of God's grace, the gift that we have received because of God's grace, the joy and thankfulness that then results in our hearts back to God because of it. Some of you may be aware of this, but although there are several synonyms in the Greek language that uh, exist, one of the primary Greek words for the word to give is charizomai. Well, it shares the same root with the words grace, charis, and joy, kara, and thankfulness, eucharistia. Now, later, at the end of the hour, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table here together. Many of you are aware of this, perhaps, but one of the terms that that goes by is the Eucharist. The Eucharist. It comes from Greek in first, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, First Corinthians chapter 11, where it describes how Christ took the bread, broke it, gave thanks, and gave it out. That idea of giving thanks, Eucharisto, right? That's the idea of where we get the term Eucharist. It's one of the many terms for the Lord's table or communion. And so what's interesting is when you look at the interplay between these words, what I want to point out is that you could rephrase it this way, that God evidences his grace toward us by giving us gracious gifts. In other words, God's grace is obvious because he gives us gracious gifts. But in turn, those gracious gifts are produce within us joy and thankfulness in our hearts, which we return back to God. That's what those, the interaction between those, those Greek words that all share the same root is so profound to me that I want to contemplate that for just a few moments before we participate in communion here together as a church body, and then we, uh, we dismiss and go about our day. So I want us to consider the gracious giving nature of God revealed by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I want to do this by reading and contemplating 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, which says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty, that you through his poverty might become rich. This is a profoundly important verse, and it describes to us this gracious nature of God in giving, really, or, or in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, and then Christ's own giving nature, in that he was willing to lay aside his own wealth and, and the riches resplendence of heaven, come down voluntarily to endure the rigors of earth and the incarnation, also that we might enjoy the riches of an inheritance that we don't deserve. And that blessed thought is what I want to contemplate for just a few moments. Now, as we look at this verse, don't forget the context of this, which you may or may not recall right away, but let me remind you that this marvelous verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 9, comes to us within the context of Paul's plea for graciousness from the Corinthian believers. Do you remember this? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul was appealing to the Corinthians 
to contribute to a collection from the Gentile churches to help provide financial support for the Jews back in Jerusalem. Do you recall this? We talked about it a while back in our study of the book of Acts. But to foster the Corinthians' graciousness to contribute to this gift, Paul points to the infinite graciousness of Christ. That's the context in which we find this marvelous verse. So elaborating on the grace of Christ, Paul urges us to consider three proofs or evidences, if you will, of Christ's grace, which unfold in three distinct stages of redemptive history. In other words, you can look at that verse and subdivide it into a th- in three major thoughts. You can see it pretty clearly laid out. The three big thoughts is that he was rich. Speaking of Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Why? That we, through his poverty, might become rich. Those are the three thoughts I want to contemplate for just a moment. So as we examine these three ideas, I'm just going to rephrase them this way. We're going to consider first, for just a moment, the resplendence of heaven, the beauty, the bright glory that we sang about just moments ago. That resplendence which Christ left voluntarily to do what? Well, number two, I want to consider the rigors of the incarnation. What did Christ give up and then what did he take on? And then lastly, the riches of our inheritance. What do we now enjoy because of that? So look at these three ideas with me for just a moment before we partake of the Lord's table together and then we go our separate ways. First, let's consider the resplendence of heaven. Now, I know I was looking specifically for an R word, but nonetheless, when I found resplendence, it was like, ah, that is saying what I'm trying to say. For those of you who are unaware, the word resplendence comes from a late Middle English uh, root, but it actually derives from Latin. And it's an intensive form of the word that means glitter or shine, to be bright. It's an intensive form of that. And the idea is to shine out, to beam brightly, to be glorious. That's the idea. So to fully appreciate what Christ did for us, we must consider the heights from which he came. And not only from which he came, but the heights to which he longed to return. We don't have the time here this morning to walk through all these passages. I do encourage you to jot these down and look them up on your own. But these are some passages that came to my mind as I was contemplating the glory which Christ left to which he longed to return. In his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he describes that no one has seen heaven save the Son of Man who came down from heaven, speaking of himself. He knew what heaven was like because he came from there. Paul says something similar in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 when he describes that Christ pre-existed in the glory of God, right? As in the express image of his person, he will say elsewhere. John chapter 1 describes that in the beginning was the word, whereas with God the word was God. Later in John chapter 17 and verse 5, Jesus in the high priestly prayer longs to return to that very glory. He prays to the Father and he says, help me, right? Return to that glory. Glorify your son with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Christ recalled that glorious presence of heaven and he longed to return to it. And this resplendent majesty of heaven's glories appears throughout the scripture in a number of passages. Here's a few classic ones that we don't have time to go through with any great detail, but Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 4. These are classic places in the scripture where we call them the throne room scenes, where the author is given an insight, a glimpse into heaven's glory. And they get to see the throne of God. And they describe the brightness. They describe the resplendence, the shining bright of heaven's glory. Heaven 
is defined by some scholars, might be defined as the place where God most fully makes his blessed, makes known his blessed presence. In other words, it's the place where God resides in all of his glory, in the fullness of his glory. Because we, on earth, we see leftovers, if you will, of the glory of God. Christ coming to earth, the Bible says, he had to robe himself in flesh. That's what the word incarnation means, to robe himself in human flesh, to actually hide or conceal to a degree his glory, because his glory is something that we could not endure were we to see it uh, in our sinful flesh. And yet, as much as we see God's blessing here on earth, and I'm going to develop that in just a moment, it's merely a, a reflection of God's glory in heaven. In other words, heaven might be defined as the place where God most fully makes known his blessed presence. But connect that with this idea. James 1.17 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. From God, the Father of lights, as he is called in that text. Yet what's interesting is as we consider the earthly gifts that we enjoy, the earthly things that we are thankful for, these are merely a shadow of heaven's realities. In other words, if you can contemplate what it is that here and now you enjoy, magnify that by infinity, and you're getting close to understanding the joy of heaven. In other words, consider for just a moment, as we look at this earth and things that we enjoy, consider the here and now, things that give us meaning, joy, pleasure. Consider the sights, sounds, and senses. Now, this is my list. I'm just going to give it to you because these are the things that pop into my head. And if it comes into my head, it comes out my mouth. And sometimes it should or shouldn't. You know what I'm saying? But you can add to your, your own list things that you enjoy. But I think of sounds of great music, a laughing child, falling rain, rolling thunder, a crashing waterfall, a purring kitten. Consider the feel of soft velvet, smooth skin, cool water, a warm embrace, a firm grasp, Gentle breeze, rich soil, silky clothes, a full stomach, quenched thirst, a warm fire, a hot drink, cool popsicle, or an intimate caress. Consider the sights of a pink sunrise, a starlit night, the endless horizon from a mountain peak, the colors, shapes, and sizes of the ocean deep, the pounding waves, mysterious caves, rolling grass, fireflies at night, handsome men, beautiful women, Adorable children, cute puppies, a table spread, a cozy cabin. Consider the smells and tastes of fresh coffee, cookies baking, peppermint tea, maple glaze, root beer, fresh rain. Like I said, this is my list, right? You might add to it a little differently, but a harvested field, fresh cut grass, sawdust, an old book. I love the smell of an old book. Scented candles, bath bombs, if you're into those sort of things. Soaps. Figured I'd throw a few girly things in there for you, but... Sweet perfume, broiling meat, right? Right, men? Broiling meat, delectable strawberries, plump grapes, dripping watermelon, right? Add to the list. What I want you to see is that these blessings of earth are merely a shadow of the reality of heaven. If these blessings are derived from God in heaven, what will it be like in his direct presence? If we can enjoy things here and now as a derivative, a reflection of God's greatness and his glory, what must it be in his direct presence? The joy of heaven's glory. 
And this idea is what I want you to contemplate for just a moment, is that this, the greatest manif- manifestation of God's blessed presence is seen in heaven, where he makes his glory known and where he sits enthroned in the midst of myriads of heavenly beings and where the redeemed saints all worship him. That's where we're heading. That's the third point. But that's also the realm from which the eternal Son came into which the glorified Christ, the glorious risen Christ, disappearing from human view, entered to assume his place on the throne of God. In Acts chapter 1, when he ascends into glory, he once again re-entered that realm from which he came, the glories of heaven, the resplendence of heaven's glories. But as we contemplate this verse, I want you to understand not only the resplendence of heaven from which Christ came, but what he came down into, the rigors of, if you will, of the incarnation. Hebrews chapter 2, for instance, verses 9 and 10, tell us plainly that in order to bring many sons into glory, Jesus had to become a man. He had to become human. So that Jesus, who humbled himself and submitted to the rigors of the, of the incarnation, might take upon us, his, or upon him, our sinfulness, to take our wickedness upon himself, to pay the penalty that he did not deserve. It wasn't his sin to pay for, it was ours. But he took it upon himself willingly. Why? So that, according to Hebrews chapter 2, he might bring many sons into this glory. He wants to bring us to the resplendence of heaven from which he came. But as we contemplate the rigors of the incarnation, and and this, by nature of time constraints, we can only glance at a few thoughts, but consider the rigors of the incarnation in just these basic points. First, which we celebrate here during this season. He was born in a borrowed stable, according to Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. Not only was he born in a borrowed stable, but he was born into a simple family. If you were to continue to read Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, it tells us that when they were to go and dedicate Jesus at the temple, they had to come with two turtle doves. Now, if you're a sensitive reader of your, of your Bible, then that may ring a bell. Back to Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 2 and verse 8, which tells us at the dedication of a baby boy, there was a lamb that was to be brought unless you were a family that could not afford to bring a lamb. If you were a poor family, then the law made this stipulation, this exception that you could bring two turtle doves. The parents of the Lord Jesus had to bring that to dedicate the Lord Jesus. The point being... He was born into a simple family. The scripture also declares that he lived without earthly wealth. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus had a couple of people come and ask him if they could follow him. And Jesus made some interesting responses in return, one of which he says, the birds have nests, right? Foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus lived without earthly wealth. But worse than that, he also lived a life of rejection. In John chapter 1, I didn't put this in your notes, but John 1 says he came into his own and his own received him not. In John 15, Jesus says, the world hates me. Therefore, speaking to his followers, it will also hate you. That is Jesus's commentary on his own life. The world hates me and they'll hate you as well. He lived a life of rejection. And then, of course, the ultimate rejection that he suffered is the gruesome death that he died on the cross. I've mentioned this before, but Paul makes this emphatic in the Greek phraseology of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 when he says, even the death of the cross. It was, worse enough, it was bad enough that Jesus had to come and he had to die, but he died the most 
heinous, gruesome death that history has ever invented. So we consider the resplendence of heaven and the rigors of the incarnation, but why did Christ do this? Why did he leave heaven's glory in order to endure such torture and rejection on earth? Answer, according to our verse, is so that we might become rich. So lastly, I want you to consider the riches of our inheritance. That Jesus did all of this so that he might be able to say, as he said to his disciples, In Matthew chapter 25, in the Olivet Discourse, he says he's longing for that day where he can invite his followers with the words, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Elsewhere in that same chapter, he says, Enter the joy of your Lord. Jesus left heaven's glory, endured the suffering of a not only a rejection and a difficult life, but a painful, lonely death. He did that so that he might invite us back into heaven's glories. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9 that the glories of this coming kingdom are beyond anything this world has ever known. He says, eyes have not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it been entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for them who love him. I love that verse. Paul is saying you haven't even been able to imagine and consider the glory that awaits believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. According to the scripture, many places, but 2 Peter chapter 1 and Jude, verse 24, one of God's expressed purposes is to call us to his own glory and excellence. Jude, he adds the detail that then we shall dwell continually in the presence of his glory with rejoicing. This is the destiny for all who believe in Christ. And this idea of the glory that God is calling us to, this glory is preeminently speaking about the place of God's enthronement that we considered earlier, the resplendence of heaven, the throne room of God, the glory of heaven from which Christ came. And this idea is a huge theme throughout the scripture. These verses were included in your notes, so you don't have to scurry to write them all down, but... I do encourage you, go home and read these later today. Trace this big idea by reading these passages, that God is calling us to glory. We have fallen short of that glory, but Christ left that glory to die for us, to give us the gift, his gracious gift of eternal life so that we can enter that glory. This is a huge New Testament theme that once the New Testament wants to draw our eyes upward to get us focused on this glorious gift. So here's the big idea, that if this is true and we consider what Christ left, what he endured so that we could join him in glory, then here's the application. Number one, be sure that you will enter that kingdom. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34, for instance, it records the sheep and the goats judgment that Jesus is standing at the door of the eternal kingdom. And he separates all of humanity into one of two categories. There are those who are believers in Christ, the sheep, who are welcomed with that invitation. Come, you blessed of my Father, into the kingdom. Inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. But then there are the goats who are separated out. And he says, depart from me into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, if this is true and Christ left heaven's glories, endured the cross, paid for my sin, also that 
he might bring me to that glory. If that is true, application number one is be sure that you're going to enter that kingdom. Do not assume that. It doesn't matter if your parents were believers in Christ, if your grandparents were believers in Christ. It doesn't matter. You have to make a personal decision to submit to the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be sure you enter that kingdom, that you trust in Jesus and him alone for your soul's salvation. Secondly, however, be motivated to store up treasure there instead of here. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, he says that we are to lay up treasure in heaven or moth or rust cannot corrupt or thieves break through and steal. He tells us, he warns us that where our treasure is there, your heart will be also. If we genuinely believe that this is what our future holds as believers in Christ, then the reality is we, are, we ought to be motivated to live in light of that, to store up our treasure there rather than here. This is a fleeting world but that kingdom is eternal. But lastly, if this is all true, then we ought to be willing to serve and endure suffering because nothing compares to that coming glory. Paul will twice say this in Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 4. He tells us to endure suffering with patient endurance. Why? He says, because it's nothing to be compared with the glory that is coming. And if that is true, if we can catch a vision of that reality, then we can be sure to endure anything that this life throws at us because we are destined for eternal glory. That's what this verse is all about. That's what this season is all about, is the gift of God that he has bestowed upon us through his grace in the person and work of Christ. But what ought that produce in our heart? Don't forget those Greek root words. It ought produce in us joy and thankfulness. In other words, God has evidenced his grace by giving us the gracious gift of Christ, which in turn ought produce joy and thankfulness in our hearts back to God, which is why this is such a fitting occasion to once more participate in the Lord's table as a family, the body of Christ. Because as we participate in the Lord's table, or the Eucharist, as it is also called, then let us truly commune with God in our hearts, individually, as, but as well as a family. We're gathered here corporately together. But as we do this, it ought be an expression of our joy and our gratitude back to God. If God's grace has bestowed upon us this gift of, his, of eternal life, the gift of his Son, and our destiny is glory in heaven, if that is true, then that ought produce joy and thanksgiving in our hearts. And one way we are told by Jesus himself to express that gratitude is through the Eucharist, to give thanks for his body that was broken, the blood that was shed, so that we might enter heaven's glory. So with that said, I want to transition. I want to transition to the concept and the participation in the Lord's table. As you often know, and we preface this each opportunity we gather together, the Lord's table is where we as believers in Christ commune with our Lord. We express our gratitude and our joy back to him for the gift that he has given to us. But Paul encourages us, he warns us, he urges us to not partake of the Lord's table unworthily. But rather, he says, let every person examine themselves. 
to see first whether you are in the faith. If you are, number one, a believer in Christ. If you are here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I urge you, do not partake of the elements. Do not make a mockery of the memorial that Christ set up for us to remember him. If you are a believer who is not walking with God, you're a believer, but by your lifestyle, you are evidencing that you're not submitting to Jesus as your Lord. Then this moment of self-examination is for you. Where you go to God in the privacy of your own heart, confess your sin, receive the forgiveness that is offered only through the personal work of Christ. And then after we do that, we typically take just a moment of silence wherein you get with God on your own. But after that, I'll close that moment of silence with a word of prayer. Then we'll have our men come forward. We will hand out the elements and we will participate in the Lord's table here together. All right, let's take that moment of silence.